Hi, and welcome to Good Authority. My name is Eric Wooten. I'm joined here today by my colleague, Dan Kellerman, to talk about democratic backsliding in the European Union, especially with regard to Hungary and Viktor Orban. Dan is the McCourt Professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy here at Georgetown University, and he has written for decades about democratic backsliding in the EU. So, uh, Dan, welcome uh, here at Good Authority. Thanks, Eric, very much for having me on the podcast. So, Dan, um, in the early 1990s, the European Union invited a, a number of Eastern European states who had been communist countries and non-democracies to join the European Union. And as part of the accession to the EU, the EU demanded that these countries be full democracies, right? Can you tell a little bit about how important that was to transform these countries from, from communist states to, to more liberal democracies? Yeah, Eric, I think that was a, a central aspect of the accession process. Uh, the EU set these criteria known as the Copenhagen criteria, which included, as you said, that the candidate countries had to uh, be functioning democracies. They also had to have market economies, have protection of fundamental rights. And you know, with those kind of criteria in place, the EU really did act as a magnet for uh, states uh, that wanted to join, you know, sort of pulling them toward democracy and the liberal institutions. You know, we have to keep that in mind now that there's these problems with backsliding, that the EU did have this, these positive effects, you know, earlier on. Right. And so the Copenhagen criteria worked uh, in the accession process. Um, but what kind of tools does the EU have to keep countries democracies once they're part of the European Union? Yeah, I think one of the striking things is that uh, I think many people, you know, the EU wasn't alone in this. There was a, a lot of sort of naivete in the 1990s, the kind of triumphalism of the fall of communism, many more countries democratizing. And in a sense, the EU's approach to the issue maybe reflected that sort of optimism because they essentially set up you know, a system where it, it was in a way based on an assumption that once countries became consolidated democracies, it wasn't really likely they would uh, revert or backslide, as we, we call it now. And so they didn't have great tools in place. I mean, they did put in place this mechanism known as Article 7, which said, uh, if a state had systemic violations of the core democratic rule of law and fundamental rights values on which the union was based, then there could be a suspension of its voting rights for that state and the council and other sort of unspecified measures. However, even that article, even though that shows they considered this possibility, the way it was set up shows they weren't too serious. Why do I say that? Because those punishments or those measures could only be put into effect with unanimous agreement uh, of the all the other states. I guess to put it plainly, if you're really serious about enforcing some values like rule of law or respect for fundamental rights, you don't make it based enforcement based on a unanimous vote in the council. To me, that was a red flag right there that they weren't too serious about enforcing this or they, yeah, they, they weren't thinking through what could happen. And do you think this might have been influenced by the history of this in the EU? So, of course, the EU played a big role in helping the southern European states transfer to democracy as well. So Spain, Portugal, Greece. And there wasn't really any backsliding there. Were they just a little bit too optimistic, perhaps, that the eastern European states would show the same trajectory? Yeah, I think that's a great point. The EU, of course, has had this long history of enlargement from six to 28, now back to 27. But 
uh, yeah, when you think of those earlier enlargements, Greece, Spain, Portugal, no, no one had this backsliding phenomena on par with what we've seen now. And so I think, yeah, it was understandable that they didn't really think that was a likely trajectory. Right. So what happened in Hungary? Can you tell uh, a brief story of what's been going on there over the last uh, 10, 15 years? Yeah, I mean, I could talk at length, but the quick version is when Viktor Orban was re-elected. He had been prime minister before and hadn't had problems with backsliding, but um, you know, he lost power and then he came back to power uh, in 2010. You know, in retrospect, we can kind of see that he had in mind that he didn't want to make the same mistake again, so to speak, of you know, putting himself in the position where he could lose power. So he really had an agenda that once he got in power, he would really try to consolidate control. And he was able to do that because when he won that first election victory in 2010, because of yeah, big scandals uh, with the governing party and other attributes of the electoral system in Hungary, he his party managed to get a supermajority in parliament. And with that supermajority, they were able to amend the constitution. Uh, his party basically set about to revise entirely the constitution of the country, consolidate control in his hands and kind of the hands of the executive of all previously independent institutions, you know, judiciary, different ombudsman offices, things like that, independent offices. So he consolidated control. He started then um, having oligarchs connected to his party take control of the media. He rigged the electoral system. Uh, he started using measures to kind of oppress uh, opposition parties using basically the power of the state to uh, make life hard for independent NGOs and opposition political parties. So in, in, in short, he deployed the classic kind of autocrats or elected autocrats playbook, which is you win one free and fair election, but then you use the power of the state to tilt the playing field such that by the time the next election comes around, it's no longer a fair election. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, Hungary, Orban's been elected a few times. So, you know, it's a democracy. We shouldn't fall for that. After all, Putin's elected, right? So uh, the fact you're elected doesn't tell us that much. Rather, what we should focus on is that bodies like the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, who send election monitors, have repeatedly uh, criticized the Hungarian elections as being very unfair, noting how the ruling party uses state resources to ensure its victory, etc. So anyway, to fast forward and just to finish, what he has managed to do over these years he's been in power is basically consolidate control of the media, the judiciary, all the, the economy to the point where it's basically impossible for him to lose now. And he has what you know political scientists call an electoral autocracy. Right. And you've written for a long time about how European political actors and EU political actors have kind of underestimated what's going on in, 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 in Hungary, or at least sort of tried to underplay it publicly. So, for example, Orban has remained a member of the European People's Party for a really long time, which, which is a party group that sort of brings together more centrist or center-right uh, political parties, uh, which he belonged to earlier, but they haven't really, or they didn't throw him out until until much more recently. Why do you think that sort of mainstream European politicians, why didn't they react quicker and more strongly against uh, against Orban's stranglehold on power in Hungary? No, that's a great question. And that's yeah really been at the center of my research for years. Maybe I'll, I'll just say something first, if you want to give them a little bit the benefit of the doubt, 
you could say, because of the history where you know, many of those on the center right, you know, thought of him, they remembered his role in the downfall of communism. They thought of him as this you know, pro-democracy freedom fighter. They thought, okay, maybe he's got a bit of populist rhetoric, but really, um, you know, he's uh, no dictator. You know, famously, Jean-Claude Juncker, previous commission president, joked with him sort of saying, hey, dictator, but he meant it as a joke because, you know, they, they just thought, well, he's an old friend, someone we can trust. So maybe they were a little bit blinded by that. But now let me give you the more, what I think is the accurate view it's actually a story that political scientists are very familiar with from kind of working comparative federalism, where we've seen in many systems. Basically, if you have a kind of federal or in the EU's case, quasi-federal system, if a political parties or party groups at the center benefit politically from uh, having some local autocrat, right, someone like Orban in their party because he delivers votes and seats in the central institutions that helps them you know, wield power and uh, gain control, well, then they'll tend to protect that local autocrat and look the other way, even if he violates, you know, democratic norms. It famously happened in the U.S. with uh, the Democratic Party after Reconstruction. And, and that's exactly kind of what happened for 10 years in the EU, where, as you said, the center-right, Angela Merkel's party, was the chief protector of Orban, even as she was seen as, you know, the leader of the free world and all that. Why? Because Orban's party was in her European People's Party and delivered them seats in the parliament, usually voted with them in the council. And so they shielded him. Now, that finally ended a couple of years ago. And that helps explain why the EU has started to crack down on him in the last two years, which is crucial. But that gave him kind of 10 years of a political protector that let him get away with what he did. Right. So he had a bit of a of a honeymoon period as a dictator, I guess, right, is what you can say, where he could do it without uh, too much scrutiny from European political elites. So, so what's changed in recent years? Because the relationship seems a bit more acrimonious now between the European political elite and the EU elite and um, and Hungary. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually just finished an article a few days ago coming out in the Journal of European Public Policy um, kind of on on that, where I, I look back a little at what happened for the 10 years, but then say, well, what's changed? Because really, um, in, since late 2021, 22, 23, the EU has, you know, cracked down uh, much more than anything we'd seen before. I think one thing, as I already mentioned, the fact that he got kicked out of the European People's Party, right, was crucial because he lost his political protection. Now, partly that's because he pushed things so far with his kind of increasing autocratization. It started to become more salient politically. And finally, some of those parties on the center right, even Merkel's party, started to see their connection and association with him as a political liability. For the 10 years that the CDU was together with Orban, no one really cared. And I think they really didn't know. There was very low awareness of European People's Party and these things. But that awareness has been increasing, partly because of you know how strident Orban has become. And a number of parties, not just Germany, but center-right parties in other countries started saying enough is enough. Another couple of factors that have changed is that you know, for years, the EU kind of excused its inaction by saying, we don't have the tools we need 
to really take action. I have a criticism of that. I think they actually always had a lot of tools. I mean, I can prove that pretty well, but okay, let's say that, you know, they were saying we need more tools, but by 2020, all these tools that they said they needed had been put in place. So there was this new uh, budget conditionality regulation passed, et cetera. They basically ran out of road with this kind of cycle of saying, well, wait a sec, if you really want us to crack down, give us new instruments. And then I think the final thing I'd say is, he just kind of kept pushing it too far. Maybe it's hubris or whatever. But, you know, I think one breaking point was in 2021 where he when he switched from focusing his culture war on migrants because there were no more migrants in Hungary to attacking the LGBT community. Really, a number of member states got very angry about that. And there was a famous council meeting where this kind of came to a head and they're shouting, et cetera. Then there was a kind of growing consensus and a, a nod from the member governments to the commission that, okay, now it's time for you to do something about this guy. Right. Um, so partially this is because European leaders then have become less acceptant of the kind of domestic transgressions that uh, that Orban has uh, committed. But it's also partially about foreign policy, right? So the latest standoff between Hungary and the EU is all about Putin. And um, Orban has sort of a longstanding frenemy relationship with Putin, I guess. So the last standoff was about Orban blocking aid to, to Ukraine. How how important do you think that was? I mean, to some countries in Europe, this this threat from Russia is obviously a very essential security threat. So if you if you touch that, that that seems to also be a a third rail a bit for some countries. Yeah, absolutely. And I should have mentioned that actually in my last answer. The other thing that sort of changed was the war in Ukraine. Now, Orban had been cultivating his ties with Russia and kind of acting as a Trojan horse within the EU. Uh, on behalf of Putin, but also, by the way, on, on behalf of Xi Jinping. He does some of that for China as well. But he'd been doing that for several years and had been trying to sort of at least slow pedal or water down sanctions against Russia back to you know the earlier rounds of sanctions. So that had been going on for a while. But then that was, of course, intensified after the full invasion of Ukraine and the outbreak of the war, you know, then Orban, I think, to the surprise of many, in a sense, with the growing momentum of support for action against Russia in the EU, increasingly became seen as basically the impediment to EU foreign policy in this effort. And that also uh, heightened the willingness of states to, you know, take action against him. Of course, you know, the flip side of that is, so a year ago, the EU suspended a lot of funds from Hungary, uh, the structural funds and the COVID recovery funds from Hungary, it's suspended uh, around 32 billion euros. Basically, the standoff has been Orban is trying to blackmail the EU into releasing that money, right? By saying, essentially, I will um, veto action on Ukraine if you don't give me my money. And that's also, by the way, why he's blocking Sweden's NATO uh, application. Because guess who's a big supporter of taking a tough stance on Hungary on rule of law? Sweden. And now they're seeing what happens to countries that try to defend rule of law. Yeah. And so so let's talk a little bit about this latest episode, because that was um, that was getting quite interesting and quite serious, where there was even a memo leaked where the EU was investigating various serious sort of coercive options against Orban as well. And Orban threatened to veto um, uh, $50 billion worth of aid to Ukraine for a long period of time. And then it seemed in the end he gave in. But what exactly happened? What's your interpretation of that, of that episode? 
Yeah, actually, that whole um, story about this leaked memo, and it was you know an article by the FT, and really then the FT pushed it in a series of op-eds. I think that was all very misleading. You know, FT is a great newspaper, but that wasn't their greatest moment because essentially that memo, that was not like a high-level strategy being advocated by European leaders. And it wasn't even framed as like a tactic to blackmail Orban. Rather, what that really was, was some official, we don't know who, or a couple of officials basically were describing what they thought would be the impact of you know this sustained fund suspension on the Hungarian economy, how it would hurt the economy, which it would. And you don't think someone higher up in the EU sort of encouraged that official to perhaps leak it to the FT? Or that's one sinister interpretation here. There's two options, right? And I don't know the answer, and I'm not sure that anyone outside a small circle does. One is that someone who wanted to put pressure on Hungary in the markets uh, leaked it. The other is that Orban had his people leak it. He's done that kind of thing so that he could play the victim and twist the narrative. Because the real, let, let's get back to the core thing. Hungary is trying to blackmail the EU saying we will suspend, you know, or sorry, we will block funding for Ukraine unless you release all our money and forget about, you know, defending the rule of law and democracy in Hungary. But somehow they're trying to spin the narrative that Hungary is the one being blackmailed by the EU. Hungary keeps calling the suspension of funds, which is done on purely legal grounds. It's all called for there in um, the rule of law conditionality regulation and in the criteria of the COVID recovery funds, et cetera. They're trying to say they're blackmailing us. Really, no, the EU is just finally doing what it should have done long ago. I, I just want to say this. A lot of people have heard, oh, yeah, Article 7, you know, you could suspend voting rights. But really, the, the key thing for the EU is the most powerful instrument is this issue of money. Because the EU has been in the really paradoxical and kind of perverse position that it has been funding democratic backsliding. Hungary gets about 4 to 5% of GDP every year handed to it in free money from the EU. Poland was also you know, a huge recipient during their backsliding, which fortunately has ended. And what, what a regime like Orban's does is it uses that EU money and then distributes it to you know, its allies and oligarchs to sustain a kind of patronage network. As political scientists listening to this, they're all familiar with the resource curse, right? And you know, having oil wells can sustain an autocracy. Well, the EU has a funding resource curse, which is the EU money comes in, this autocrat controls its distribution. So the most powerful thing the EU can do to defend rule of law is not uh, hand out free money to backsliding regimes that flout EU law. Right. So how do you see this relationship developing sort of in the in the longer term? So we just had the, the latest episode over, over funding for Ukraine. But this problem is not going to go away, probably. Um, how big a problem is Orban for the EU uh, and for the European integration project more, more broadly? Well, I think Orban is a big problem uh, and will continue to be, but it goes beyond Orban. That we should keep in mind. I mean, the EU dodged a bullet with this election result in Poland, but it could have very easily been the case that the PIS or you know, Peace Party uh, would have won again. And they were very openly trying to deploy the Orban playbook. And by the way, we have an excellent uh, explainer on the Polish election by Anna Grismala Busa on, uh, on Good Authority, which is really good and ex explains the background to that election really well. Yeah, I read that. And that's a great piece. And you couldn't have anyone better than Anna. And I would just say in Poland, the party didn't succeed in consolidating its electoral autocracy, right? The elections were still fair enough, even though there was some sort of tilting of the playing field with the state media and other things. But it was still fair enough the opposition could win. 
And thank goodness. Point is, um, it could have easily gone the other way, and you know, Poland could have continued down the path to consolidating electoral autocracy. Other regimes could go in the same way. We we know that the far right and kind of autocratically inclined parties are gaining in a number of member states. So we don't want to focus just too much on Orban, even though he's the most advanced case, because there's a deeper structural problem for the EU, which goes back to what you asked at the beginning about you know the kind of Copenhagen criteria and well, what does the EU do for a state after it joins the EU? What is its leverage? And the problem is, right, that the EU has shown itself politically unwilling or incapable of standing up in a robust enough manner to, you know, the, these kind of democratic backsliders. It's a really profound crisis for the EU because the EU is, is not a state. It doesn't have police, uh, it doesn't have coercive power. Um, it is a very powerful uh, body, but it really relies on what they call an EU law, the sincere cooperation of the member states. Uh, the whole system is dependent on ha having member countries with independent judiciaries that enforce EU law who, you know, sure, they violate the law sometimes, but they, you know, they won't openly flout uh, the law and try to basically defy the authority of the European Court of Justice and its rulings, etc., and if you have a state that goes in that direction, right, the EU then turns out to be very fragile, sort of like the emperor has no clothes. And so that's why this kind of rise of member state autocracies is an even bigger crisis for the EU than it would be in, let's say, a federal system with one local autocrat in the state. And also because to go back to the Ukraine thing, because so many key areas in the EU are still done by unanimous agreement, the budget, foreign policy. So that makes the EU very vulnerable to these rogue states. Right. And indeed, yeah, the EU is always a, an unusual political entity. There's decisions that have to be made by unanimity. So it looks more like an international organization, even though these decisions are more uh, consequential sometimes than in other international organizations. And then it has some features of a democracy. And you already alluded to the, the, the gains of the far right. There are big European elections this year. And some people project that the far right could win as much as 25 to 30 percent of the vote in those in those elections. So, so do you see that as a, as a threat to the character of the EU and the way the EU functions or can behave also towards potential backsliding states? Yeah, no, definitely. In, in fact, yeah, I have another paper I was doing with my colleagues uh, from Switzerland. Um, we're sort of asking about these kind of coalitions with a radical right or autocratically inclined parties and more moderate parties at the EU level and, and what voters think about those. Fortunately, I suppose, uh, one thing we found is that when voters learn about such coalitions happening at the EU level, they, they don't want to see that happen. The unfortunate side is awareness has been pretty low of the, those things going on. So, you know, with this upcoming election, what's going to happen, as you said, is it looks like the far right is going to make big gains. Now, they're not going to get a majority. They'll still be a kind of centrist majority, but there will be a growing temptation for centrist parties, particularly those on the center right, to maybe sell out their democratic values and to form some kind of alliance with these parties on the radical right or the autocratic kind of inclined parties. And if they do that, right, that's the real danger, uh, because if they sort of sacrifice the cordon sanitaire and let these kind of parties uh, get more influence in the EU, well, then they're going to work to make the EU a kind of safe zone for autocracy.
Right. And so, so, so far, we've talked a lot about sort of political support for Orban, or at least political leaders being unwilling to sanction Orban. But you've also written a lot about uh, the European Commission and especially the European Court of Justice as institutions that can enforce the rule of law and other sort of important uh, aspects of democracy. Can you say a little bit about the role of those two institutions in, in all of this? Do they have the power to be effective on, in enforcing uh, these kind of very core uh, developments like backsliding on the rule of law? Yeah, that, no, that's a great question. And I would, I'll give the, the quick answer and then elaborate a bit. Basically, with this whole crisis of democratic backsliding and attacks on the rule of law, I would say the commission um, has kind of covered itself in shame, although it's gotten a bit better in the last couple of years, as I mentioned, but it didn't do enough. Whereas the court of justice, I think has been very impressive and is in fact been the one pushing the commission. The commission would often say, oh, we don't really have authority to act on these things. You know, we can't enforce these vague norms like independent judiciary. Then what you would have happen is, for instance, judges in Poland would send references directly to the Court of Justice, sort of saying, hey, I'm basically being oppressed by my government. Isn't that against EU law? And then the Court of Justice would issue rulings saying, yes, in fact, that is against EU law, and these are enforceable legal norms. And so then the commission kind of yeah, ran out of excuse because they were pushed by the Court of Justice to sort of do their job more. And eventually they have started bringing, um, they started bringing more actions about, you know, attacks on independent judiciary and things like that. But yeah, basically, I think the commission has been reluctant to play its role as the guardian of the treaties because they didn't get a strong signal from the member states uh, that they should be doing that. As we said before, kind of with Hungary finally upsetting the others. The commission got a kind of green light signal from member governments that, yeah, okay, you can bring more uh, legal actions against Hungary. So, yeah, so these institutions are powerful. But but so if the Court of Justice rules against Hungary or Poland, does that have any effect in those, in those countries? Or is it fairly easy still to ignore those rulings by a willing backsliding country? You know, it has no coercive force. Uh, so it's not going to send in an occupying force or police if the state uh, defies its rulings. But what you have seen is that, first of all, so in Poland, for instance, the government was openly defying uh, some ECJ rulings. And there's a procedure in the EU where when a state fails to comply with an ECJ ruling, the commission, if it's willing, can bring a follow up case saying, hey, uh, European Court of Justice, this country has not complied with your previous ruling. We would like to impose penalty payments on them. And so they were doing that to Poland and basically deducting you know, millions and millions of euros from um, the, the EU budget contributions to Poland. But in a context where these countries get billions, those millions of fines are still sort of peanuts so that it's not so big. Ultimately, the open refusal to comply with ECJ and European Court of Human Rights rulings then form part of the kind of legal basis for suspending funds more broadly to those regimes. Right. And so the, the court rulings give basically a legal basis for political actors to then use the power of the purse to actually put pressure on these regimes. Well, this is this has been a fascinating discussion. Just, just to end, I want to see sort of how optimistic or pessimistic you are. And, and you already mentioned the Polish elections that perhaps somewhat surprisingly uh, led to a reversal of democratic backsliding. And there's also, of course, elections in Slovakia that may have uh, gone in the other direction. 
we're seeing the rise of the far right, but then we also see big protest movements in, in Germany that seem to have reduced the popularity of the far right a little bit, at least uh, according to initial opinion polls. So, so there seems to be some resilience um, as well to, to this democratic backsliding. People were writing as if this, sometimes are writing as if this is a phenomenon that will inevitably continue. How do you see this? Are, are, do you have a pessimistic outlook here or are you somewhat more on the optimistic side? Well, I'm I'm constantly torn over that, maybe because I'm, you know, I'm Hungarian and Californian, which so the the former makes me a pessimist, the latter an optimist. But um, there are some encouraging signs that make me optimistic. There's this willingness to crack down on Hungary we've seen lately. Also, we've seen other Euro parties, for instance, after the elections in Slovakia where uh, actually the socialist party in Slovakia has this autocratically inclined leader, Fico, who entered a coalition with the far right, and then his party was immediately suspended by the European Socialist Party. So that, that's a kind of positive sign that, you know, at the EU level, even the political parties are starting to say enough of, you know, this kind of backsliders. So there's positive signs. But the thing that makes me more pessimistic is you know, partly the lessons of, you know, other countries around the world or political systems, you've seen that this kind of problem of pockets of authoritarianism or of autocratic rule within what's supposed to be a broadly democratic system, like we saw in the US with the solid South after Reconstruction, those things can go on for decades, right? And so it's not a problem that just solves itself, right? Uh, It's only when sort of a democratically inclined political leaders at the center really decide that it's in their interest to uphold those democratic values and to intervene decisively to put pressure on these regimes that anything happens. And so I guess the pessimistic side of me is just seeing that too many leaders uh, haven't been willing to kind of have that backbone to, to call for that sort of action. I, I think we're all there. So it's uh, we'll have to wait and see. All right, Dan, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, same here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Eric. Good Authority's mission is to bring insights from political science to a broader audience. Everything we publish, including this podcast episode, is freely available with no paywall or subscription fee. All Good Authority content are under a Creative Commons license and can be copied and redistributed as long as the work is attributed to us and any changes are noted. We'd like to thank our funders, especially the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Democracy Fund, and Vanderbilt University. You can find links to what we mentioned in this episode on our website, goodauthority.org. Thank you.